Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's the second time it's gone off. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen, Murph and Ken all here. Hey, Hello, Owen. How are you? Are you? Well, good. Well, very good. I mean, there is the odd Monday where you're... Let's be honest, you're scratching around a little bit for the really big storylines. Maybe the big game of the weekend hasn't worked out. Nothing much happens off the field. You know this kind of thing. Today is not one of those Mondays. No. England knocked out of their own World Cup. Ireland scraping past Italy. Diego Maradona, I don't know if you saw Maradona, did you? He was at the Argentina game. At the Argentina game. As soon as the coverage started, before the game kicked off. He they, was the star of the Argentina game. They, they picked out Diego Maradona whooping and hollering and throwing a scarf. <laughs> I thought, this is great because you're going to see him a hundred times during this game. Yeah. See, you, you saw him quite often during the matches going more and more. He kept hugging. He kept leaning down to hug somebody who I think might have been a member of the backroom team. Mm. And they showed the players celebrating afterwards. And you could see they were giving a big thumbs up, a big beaming smile up to the stands. And there's a certain smile that lads have towards their families, yeah. which is, you know, filled with warmth and love. And then there's a, a, bu- the there's smile a Maradona above that. smile. There's a Maradona. They're like, oh, it's Maradona. <laughs> you see, so anyway, the next thing is a vine comes out later on in the day of Maradona leading the chants in the dressing room. After the game, <laughs> you remember the scene in the 1986 documentary oh, yeah, where exactly like that, Ken. I, I don't want to be crude here, but you know, with slightly different physique. But the it's scene, like someone ate Diego Maradona from 1986, and that person is now dancing in the Argentina. <laughs> but that exact game. same <laughs> joyous expression and the same basic That's body. Uh, did he take his clothes off? No, no, no. no, no, no okay. But he was wearing leather wear, which was not flattering. Why wouldn't he? His present form. But uh, I mean, I, I think really in a lot of ways that it was a tale of two supporters on Saturday, Prince Harry, <laughs> and on Sunday, Diego Maradona. And I mean, I think it was the the contrasting, uh, the contrasting uh, facial expressions yeah. uh, of both of those gentlemen. I think it pretty much sums it up in a you know in 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 one sentence. Just what happened at the World Cup? We haven't even mentioned the football. Arsenal thumping Man United. Jose Mourinho's seven-minute post-match monologue, and to cap it all off, Brendan Rodgers sacked by Liverpool last night. The statement can notable for the absence of the phrase mutual consent. They weren't sugarcoating no. this one. No, no. contract terminated. Uh, yeah, I was. I was. I, it was. I was put in mind of that uh, brilliant Gates Lee's article where he writes about the obituary writer in the oh, New York yeah, Times, yeah. where he has written obituaries for hundreds of people, and now he must sit there and wait for them to pass away so that he can, you know, so that his work can be seen. And I was just wondering whether you'd like to read now the Brendan Rodgers Gets the Sack article that no doubt you've written numerous times over the last number of months, Ken. No, no, I hadn't, hadn't done it. was was, was uh, thinking to myself, hmm. I mean, there was, there was that whole thing in the, sort of the morning of the game. There was this whole story about how Jurgen Klopp's assistant had blabbed to the Bosnian press that he was all set to take over. Uh, and there was quite a few rumours flying around that Rogers was, this was going to be his last day. But of course, I'd already own, been writing about Jose Mourinho. Oh, you wrote a very good Mourinho piece. I, might, I was going to save that to the football podcast. We, 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 we're not yeah. going to get into that now. But I was thinking, you know, it's happening at six. I was like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't rise to the occasion. Well, you can rise to it right now. <laughs> Give us your verbal reaction. Well, I feel sorry for Brendan Rodgers. I feel sorry for him because it's a it's a shattering day for him. 
uh, things didn't ultimately work out and it's going to be a difficult readjustment. Um, I don't think, uh, I don't feel sorry for him because I think, I, I, you know, that because he's been unfairly treated. I don't think he has been unfairly treated. I think it's it's probably overdue that this had happened. I thought it probably should have happened in the summer um, because all that's happened since then is, is a kind of continuation of where they were at, I think, all of last season. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a uh, it's a strange one. What can I say? Well, I I'm not, haven't haven't risen to the occasion very well at all. Well, no, that's okay. Well, I was going to put something to you here mm. that I read. It was written by Neil Atkinson on the Anfield Rap. Yeah, well, that was an example of something which seemed to me must have been in the locker. <laughs> I know the piece you're talking about, Owen, is on the Anfield Rap, and it was, he's kind of he's looking back at the 13-14 season. But it's a very long piece with a lot of thought put into it. I'm not sure he rattled that one off in the half hour between Rogers getting sacked and it well, I don't care. appearing in my yeah, Twitter feed. I don't care how, <laughs> how long it took him to rattle off. I was interested. In, the central point of this article was that Liverpool's Liverpool's title charge in 2013-2014 made this particular Liverpool fan the happiest he's ever been in his life. He said because there was a difference. He compared it to when Rafa Benitez pushed Liverpool close. But there was so much going on around Benitez. Even at that stage, people were a lot of people wanted him gone. Uh, there was a, he, as he says himself, Liverpool's title charge in 08-09 mostly wasn't an enjoyable experience. It was fraud. It was stressful. It was about sticking it to people. Whereas in thirteen fourteen, no one was sticking it to anyone. It was quite unexpected and it was very uncomplicated and joyous. Mm. And he will remember Brendan Rodgers for that season as opposed to for all the other stuff that happened since. I will probably remember Brendan Rodgers for being the man who said he had no choice but to participate in that documentary and yet in that documentary introduced the cameras to his two King Charles Spaniels, Lola and Honey. (laughs) Now, I thought, why are you doing that? Is there really any need to do that? I mean, that's that that unfortunately for me will always affect my kind of my idea of where Rodgers is at. However, that season that he's talking about or the two seasons he's talking about, Mm -hmm. there's a there's a difference between them in that in 2008, 2009. Liverpool would have started that season as being a contender for the title. They were in the Champions League. They had a very strong team, which was full of good players, strong right through the team. And they would have been fancy to to do something, or at least expected to do something. Whereas when they started off in 13-14, they were not expected to do anything. Um, And they weren't in the Champions League. They got to the quarterfinals of the Champions League in 2009. So that's a lot of extra games, a lot of extra stuff they had to take on. That team actually finished with more points than the Brendan Rodgers team. Um, it was a different kind of uh, kind of season because they were chasing Manchester United, who were kind of wobbling a little bit, but ultimately closed it out. Whereas the Rogers team actually had the chance to win it, and they were the ones that that wobbled. You know, mm. um, I I I mean I I feel, and we've talked about that a lot. That they had a genius in their team, Luis Suarez, who wasn't just like a a guy who was a genius in everything he did in the field. He was he was kind of he was a one man culture of winning at the club. Uh, and I think he dragged all the winner. Where you have to say Brendan Rodgers did deserve credit in that season. He did something that season which I thought was crazy at the time, which was this, after kind of Christmas, I mean, he'd had a couple of bad results against Chelsea and Man City. He he rolled out this new formation, essentially, which had Suarez, Sterling, Sturridge, Coutinho, Henderson, and Gerrard. That was his front six. right? You don't have a player really there who has the faintest idea how to defend in midfield. Sounds a bit like Ozzy Ardiles's totally dream team, the way you said it out there. Yeah. The first the first game they tried it at was against Aston Villa and they ended up being, I think, 2-0 down to Villa and then come at Anfield and coming back to draw two all. And it looked like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You can't get away with that. It's 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 stupid. These players are are, are physically too slight, you know, there's not enough defensive know how, you're gonna concede too many goals. Actually, they played amazing football. I mean, they played. They they it just worked, and okay, they did let in a lot of goals, but they they were winning games five three six three. You know this kind of thing. It was insane. It was it was crazy, and another manager maybe wouldn't have been able to get that out of them. Wouldn't have tried something as as nutty as what Rogers was doing because it was insane, but it was it was the kind of insanity that actually worked, and ultimately he kind of yeah. And when it caught up with them, you know, in the last few games, the three all with Crystal Palace, the game against Chelsea. Uh, the argument always has been, that, and you have said it, that you know all it needed was nil just you know two like a nil all against Chelsea was all that was needed. But when you put it into that perspective, this idea, like the whole thing was built on craziness, on mm. a crazy idea. So the idea that 
it, with with all of the craziness having gotten you into a situation where you could win the league, to then s- stop being crazy was maybe the bigger ask than you know than than to fi- then all of a sudden say right we've gotten into a situation where you can win the league. Now we totally change everything that's got us into yeah. this position. Yeah. I still think that's what he should have done because of the particular nature of Jose Mourinho Chelsea as an opponent. They're not they they want you to attack them. That's what they if you do, if you don't they don't know what to do. I mean, just think, in terms of his piece comparing the two teams, I think if the 2009 Liverpool team had played the 2014 one, they would have beaten them 1-0 and Suarez would have bitten Carragher. <laughs> yeah, his, his point is not so much just the type of football. It was the, react, the personal reaction that he had, the reaction he saw in the city to that team, to the Rodgers team. There was a lot more genuine warmth about things. There was no negative atmosphere around the club which there was. He said he talked about the, there being a lot of bickering around the Benitez stuff and not even with other fans. When he's talking about sticking it to people, he was saying he was he himself was defending Benitez and st- uh, sticking it to people who were attacking Benitez and mm. that, that w- it was too early in the Rodgers reign for that to be the case. He was just this young manager that fans were getting starting to get to know and he gave them yeah, that the, season. The, the, he the, helped to give them that season. Yeah, the piece is, the piece is great, you know, um, but what it is is basically it's talking about just the juvenile nature of like being a sports fan you know what yeah. I mean and like that and, and that at some stage unfortunately you get introduced to real life and that's what happened to Brendan Rodgers not now but against Chelsea that day and against Crystal Pass and the 3-all and that's unfortunately what the whole thing is is all about it's nice to feel like you're a kid but most of the time that ends up with you thinking my god why don't I just grow up and think about this thing rationally? Maybe the <laughs> Irish rugby team could have done a bit more craziness yesterday. Time for one of these. I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay. Ain't nobody with my clip. We don't normally click, broadcast click, all the, the stuff click, that comes from scum click, around the country. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. Click, 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 click. Today's scumbag is David. <laughs> Hello, lads. Hello, David. Hey, David. Anytime, <laughs> very polite scumbag, uh, this guy. Anytime a game gets tight, or if there are a couple of drop balls in some of our strikes moves, strike moves, all the belief in our ability to attack creatively disappears immediately, and we revert to kicking the leather off the ball. The conservative nature of our attack is starting to get embarrassing at this stage. I'd also add, how can Johnny Sexton possibly be considered the top number 10 in the world with the goal-kicking accuracy that he has, or rather doesn't have? One example that many misses a Scotland game in March but this said it all about him he was motoring along really well knocking kicks over for fun when all of a sudden even with plenty of time remaining Ireland got within a penalty of the target Wales had set suddenly the nerves got to him and he missed two fairly easy penalties thoughts well Simon thoughts on that from David maybe uh, the second maybe the second first of point. all the, uh, scum seems a fairly polite email well yeah <laughs> I, I, I described him as a polite scumbag but um, you know, there you go thoughts on uh, se- thoughts on Johnny Sexton were pretty scummy if you ask me yeah. Thoughts on Sexton are, yeah, it's not like his technique wavered at that point. I thought early in his Ireland career, he looked a little nervous and he hovered over things. There was that famous one against New Zealand when I think he took more than the minute allotted and he just seemed to get into his own head in the preparation phase for the kick. But uh, if you think about the Heineken finals he's been in, he's arguably man of the match in all three for Leinster and hauled them back into the one against Northampton. And he's played well. Uh, but his goal, goal kicking isn't an issue, though, in general, I don't think. No. It, it certainly was. Uh, maybe it, this could be coloured as well by the fact that he didn't get to take them for the Lions. You know, that, that, that Halfpenny took them, as you would That's obviously just give Halfpenny stats. To. Halfpenny's stats are amazing. Yeah. And it was the right decision to go to Halfpenny. I mean, just because Halfpenny's taken doesn't mean you're a bad uh, penalty taker or that the coach doesn't trust you. Um, that's straight mathematics. But I think there's a bigger issue with the first point about Ireland uh, reverting to this kicking game when the game got tighter, when the pressure was on. Um, because we looked good quite early on in the game, but then when the score was tight, we just seemed to go back to what we did in the early Six wasn't Nations game. Wasn't that just when we went down to 14 men, though? No, I thought we were doing it the whole game. I thought oh, yeah, there was really way I mean, too much of a reliance on the kicking game. Well, I thought Sexton, in the last 10 minutes, just didn't run the ball at all. I mean, uh, and I think that, that 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 may have had something... I think that there was definitely a tactic where we were going to kick the ball a lot. It was only when we went down to 14 men that we kicked the ball... All well, Sexton didn't even get the ball though for large parts of that second half because Murray's just box kicking the things within an inch of its life. Well, there was one really good example around the 70th minute, I think it was, where 
Ireland did actually get good ground from a, it was a Conor Murray box kick. Tommy Bow managed to half knock it back. It wasn't the clean catch that he did. It was uh, close to a clean catch, but ended up in Irish hands. Really quick ruck ball. And then the next phase, it goes straight to Paul O'Connell. Just one man out, running quite slowly and tackle behind the gain line. And all the momentum was taken out of the thing. So there was us not having uh, huge ruck speed um, and not much quick ball. But when we did get it on the few occasions, we seemed to you know, not go to sex or not go to our option takers out in midfield as if we didn't quite trust them to do the right thing. Well, Jerry Thornley is in London. Dennis Hickey's popped into the studio beside us here. Uh, lads, Dennis, I'll start with you. Rob Carney is fifth. This is the good news today that uh, he's going to be fine. He's training fully at the moment. Jared Payne jogged yesterday and he'll be okay as well. So all 31 players should be available for the crunch game against France. Now, if we're being kind of optimistic about things today, we've three wins and three remarkably in the middle of a World Cup zero injuries should we actually be feeling pretty good about things? Well that's certainly a positive and it'd be a big positive for the squad because as a, you know, if you have a lot of injuries in your squad it does you know, it does permeate through the, through the kind of bit of negativity a bit of anxiousness can permeate through the squad and you know, it's a credit to obviously the condition the, the, that the team is in and the, and the medical staff that they've been able to do that I saw Jared Payne yesterday at the game he's wearing one of those big Boots, oh, yeah. um, to obviously to make sure his his uh, foot injury um, was going to be okay. But if they say he's going to be okay, I'm sure he is. Yeah, it's remarkable actually that they've got to three games and no serious injuries. If you look at the, if you look pr- at any game we've seen, we've seen guys, a lot yeah. of guys being injured, seriously injured. Some of them. You mentioned anxiousness there, Dennis. And we've been talking from the start of the tournament about the unique challenge of the Rugby World Cup as distinct from the Six Nations and Ireland's history in the tournament, baggage, all these kind of things. Would you be a little bit concerned about the level of anxiety showed by the players yesterday, or can you can you just box that off as a one-off game that we can immediately forget about? Well, I, I'm not sure they were. I'm not sure it put their performance down to the fact that they were anxious. Um, so, like, I, I wouldn't say that that played a huge part in 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 the performance yesterday. Well, it was interesting. Schmidt said that on the way to the ground, usually there's a lot of chat on the yeah, team bus that. and all this kind of thing, but this time there was nothing. Nobody was saying a word. They all seemed very tense. Yeah, I, I suppose I wasn't there, so I, I'm not sure why that, why that may be over and above the the usual. Um, but I, I I think you know from a player's perspective, there definitely would have been a recognition that yesterday's game was going to be a step up. There was a lot to play for. They wanted to um, obviously make it secure the place in the quarter final, and they also uh, I, I would say they really wanted to step up their performance and they wanted to really deliver a performance and that'll be a cause for a little disappointment I'd say. What would you put it down to then if it wasn't anxiety? Um, well, I'm not sure there's one there's one thing that was, that was responsible for, for them not performing to the level that they wish they had. You know, there was there was a couple of things in the game that they didn't execute particularly well. I think Joe Schmidt t- touched them. I, I think certainly around the breakdown and the presentation of the ball wasn't as, as crisp, I think, as, as they would have wanted it to, to be. Um, I think some of their kicking was maybe a little bit aimless. Um, or Sorry, aimless is the wrong word, probably just not executed very well. Uh, maybe some wrong options to kick. I think sp- sp- especially in the second half, uh, where the game was very flat, there was not a huge amount of continuity of play. There was a lot of stop-start, a lot of one or, one or two-phase rugby. Um, and then for, for some reason, be a penalty or a knock-on or, or the ball kicked away. And as a result, there was never any huge uh, momentum that Ireland could generate. Um, and Italy obviously played their part in that. I thought Italy actually played quite well. They have limitations in their ability to actually score tries. But they moved the ball uh, as much as I've ever seen Italy move the ball. You know, they mixed it up pretty well. They went wide. They took it in tight. Um, and they have they have some good players to be able to do that. So you know, I thought Italy played pretty you know as, as well as I've seen them play for a long time. And uh, you know, I think we have a tendency when we look at Ireland um, to look at just you know them in 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 isolation yeah. and and you know try to wonder why we didn't score ten tries. And you know, they're playing against a side that's a top tier nation, uh, all be one that has rarely beaten them. Um, but I thought Italy played, you know, the, certainly the best game of the tournament, the best game I've seen so far. But there was, yeah, there was a, two or three key elements of the Irish performance that I think stopped them uh, getting the fluidity they were looking for. Jerry, how much of an impact is it going to have? Do you think on the the mindset going into or the performance level that you're expecting going into the France game? It's a completely different mindset. You'd like to think Ireland now have their place in the quarterfinals done and dusted. It's France. There's certainly no element of. Um, complacency. I'm not saying they were necessarily complacent against the Italians, but they were expected to win. Um, there's no great expectation of them winning against France as such. I mean, France is 
always a huge challenge for any Irish team. Uh, they'd be fully cognizant of that, even though they've gone the last four-year cycle without losing them once. There were two draws and two one-score wins, and that. And we all always know as well that fans are a different proposition. Come to World Cup, it's a pool decider. It's the Millennium Stadium. Um, it's a much better venue. The Olympic Stadium is not a great venue for a rugby match. It's not purpose-built for a sport like rugby. Um, the in-goal area is tiny, and the crowd are a fair bit distance away from the match. So I think the Millennium Stadium will be different. Um, full house uh, next Sunday against the French, and I think it will be a different type of performance. That being said, it's still a worry that there was... Um, if Ireland could struggle to clear out effectively in ball presentation, generate quick work ball, there were times when they generated really quick work ball, and it... Um, and if they were struggling then, but once it slowed down for phase or two, it just got a sense that no matter how many phases Ireland went through, they weren't going to pierce the Italian defence. And if Ireland are struggling to generate quick ball against Italy, you'd imagine that will um, be every bit as difficult against France because they're bigger men and um, they're supremely fit, as we know at the moment, and their game is based on collisions. That's where they're strongest. Jerry, I thought there was a real theme to the Irish performance. It was as if they were ponderous and thinking over every phase before they started. Conor Murray, maybe because he is the scrum half, reflected that he, he hovered over quite a few rooks as if he wanted his backline to be set so that they knew what they were going to do before they received the ball. There was almost no off-the-cuff play, only really in the final 10 minutes did we see any kind of deception. It was as if Ireland were overly aware of their game plan at every moment of the game, I thought. Yeah, that could well be the case. There was the, there was something very kind of ponderous about it, all right, slow-paced, um, it was like it was interesting here. Joe Smith used the phrase they were lulled into false sense of security. Now, with that implied, they were a little bit complacent enough. But by having built scoreboard pressure in the previous two games, they could then kind of freely go through their moves. The stakes were higher here, and they never got more than a score ahead. And I think they started to be then. On top of all that, I thought they kind of lapsed into, as Dennis said, a lot of kicking, um, not all but very well executed. And so they were just going through one phase where they kicked the ball. I think they kicked the ball out of hand 35 times. Um, it became, it just became like they were caught in a tactical straitjacket at that stage, and they couldn't pull clear. And in the, it got a little bit scary indeed. And they were indebted to Peter Manny's tackle on, on Ferno to prevent a try. And when it got back to a one-point game, um, they did pull pull themselves together enough for Johnny Sexton to kick two penalties and, and win it by seven points. But like it was never the most convincing performance. It certainly was the performance of a team that could beat France or Argentina, much less the All Blacks over the next two weeks. Dennis, you're not sure nerves played a part, but Ireland certainly didn't play with any confidence, I didn't think. Um, And you just wonder, when the pressure comes on certain teams, say England, um, they went back and picked their big men and just relied on maybe bashing the ball up. With Ireland, it seems when the pressure came on against Italy, uh, we relied on box kicks and an old enough formula, whereas some teams seem to have come in with a fresh game plan, would you worry that Ireland are going to fall back on, on what they've done in the past and will that be good enough? Well, I'm not sure to agree that they, they didn't play with confidence. I think they approached the game with a fair bit of confidence because I thought they confidence they took a lot of confidence from their performances, albeit against, against weaker teams in the first two games. Um, but I, I think there was you know frustration built during the game as they, as they failed to, to get on top and dominate Italy, I think. And that uh, you know that probably m- might have played on, on on the players' minds as the game went on. Uh, it was a fu- it was a funny t- type of game in the sense that, although it was a one score game at the end, uh, you know I never got a sense that Ireland were going to lose the match. Really? Um, yeah. Honestly. Even with the at the Peter Manny tackle yeah. moment to Inferno. Yeah, I I, I thought Ireland, uh, you know, I, Italy were you know they had that good passage of play and and they could have uh, could could have grabbed a score there but i i thought ireland were in control of the match i just thought ireland um you know weren't able to even though they were in control of the match for periods of time they weren't able to ad- impose their game on on italy to the, to to the level they wanted to and then they became disjointed i think especially in the second half like the first half it was a tight game they scored a good try I thought they took a lot, you know, they scored it just at half time and they went into the change room, I'd say, with a bit of confidence. A couple of things that they were going to work on, tighten up a few things. But it was the second half where things never really got going again. And, um, uh, you know, they, they lapsed into that kicking, uh, you know, which, which really kind of broke up their continuity play, you know. Which is strange because the, the thing that I don't get about falling into that trap of maybe using the box kick too much in Conor Murray's case is that you have there was one moment where Conor Murray hit an, uh, kicked an excellent box kick Tommy Bow went and regathered it 
this is down the really tight to the right hand touchline. Then Conor Murray kicked another box kick, and I was like, well, hang on, well, Tommy Bow can't chase that. He's just getting up off the ground. Nobody there. could chase it, yeah. Yeah, and you've got Sexton inside you. You know, you've got one of the great playmakers in world rugby. Taken out of the game, yeah. Taken out of the game somewhat. I'm mm. not necessarily blaming Murray for that, but that was the way it panned out. Yeah, like that was, but you know, sometimes players just make take the wrong de- make the wrong decisions, and that again zap the momentum from the game, and that that did happen a couple of times. You know, that was certainly an incident. I think everyone kind of noticed just a poor decision, and um, you know, uh, and then there was a, a there was a, I thought Ireland had a good attacking position at one point, and it chose a cross kick uh, off very early phase, and. And so there was, there was just a couple of elements to the kicking game. I think that was, you know, kicking game has been very strong for Ireland and we've spoken about how effective it's been and it just wasn't particularly effective yesterday. Um, and the the problem was, I think it wasn't really mixed with uh, an attack in the, certainly in the second half that was asking a lot of questions, the Italian defensive. So therefore it, it seemed very one dimensional. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think... I think the other the, there was another element to play is that you know it's a third center partnership Ireland have had in three games so they they haven't had a chance to have a 10 12 13 axis play together uh, again and again and again you've had guys for for one reason or other injury knocks um that you've this is a, that's a third combination in as many games and and that that I'm sure is is playing a part because you don't have that familiarity you don't have a combination that is that is used to, you know, a, a dynamic does develop whereby, you know, a 13 could be always calling the attack. The 10 could look to the 12 for, for, for feedback of certain games. And when guys are slotting in for the first time, uh, they tend to be focusing a little bit on their own game because, you know, Gallagher Abiyancho hadn't played a huge amount. I'm sure he wanted to get elements of his game down pat before. You know, I'm sure that was the primary focus he was at. Same Keith Thurles hasn't played in 13 in a while. So, you know, it's very hard to read what that dynamic must have been like. But I'm sure it plays a part because it would play a part for any side. Yeah, and it's not as if Henshaw and Payne even are that established a partnership. Exactly, yeah. and, and, and Joe Celsa said about this backline that it's a constructed one. It's players pulled from different positions. Nobody's really um, meshed together particularly well. So the, the problem is, is that it, it, that's what it looked like. That's 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 the worry for from an from an Irish attacking perspective is that's what it looked like. It looked like it, it, it is a it is a construct rather than uh, you know all fantastic players individually. Most of them, like all of them, are playing very well in this World Cup individually as well. Obviously, we hadn't seen Robbie Henshaw. You know, but Earls had a, has, is having a fantastic tournament. Simon Z was having a really good tournament. Dave Carney. You couldn't go going through that back line. You couldn't say, well, you know, we're really struggling in this position. But what we are struggling with is is putting the same back line on week after week and letting them build a, a rapport. And, and it, it, as a result, it looked a bit disjointed yesterday. Jerry, when Ireland do go on a run and play particularly well, it's because our rucking game is really fluid and that was the main issue. We did get quick ball at times and didn't use it well, but in general it was slow ball. Sean O'Brien, is he slightly out of form at the moment, do you think? I know he's concentrating more and more on ruck and less and less on ball carrying, but you still like him to do a bit of what he was originally very good at. Yeah, it seems like Ian Henderson has become the primary ball carrier now and um, Sean O'Brien was chop-tackled very effectively by the Italians yesterday and try as he might, couldn't break free of them. His presence at the break, I think he gave away a couple of penalties as to Peter Armani, so it wasn't, it, it, he's not in vintage form at the moment, that's for sure, <clears throat> for whatever reason. And um, you're right about the ruck ball because Ireland don't offload, so if you're only going to try five offloads a game, and interesting enough, when they did go for the jugger, I think just after 10-3, Jamie Heath had made a pass off the ground. Keith Earls trying to make a couple of passes off the deck as well. They didn't go to hand. So it, it doesn't seem to come naturally to them. And if, they're not all, if you're not offloading and you become so dependent on the speed of your rock ball and that slow down, then you can look like quite a blunt instrument. And Ireland looked very blunt yesterday, particularly if there isn't dynamic ball carrying from up front. You need your carriers really getting over the gain line. And only Ian Henderson succeeded in doing this. Sean O'Brien is not doing this at the moment. It's a little bit of a concern for sure. Um, and if and Keen Healy was only used as an impact replacement, and Sean Cronin very late in the day, they'd be the main guys that were most effective at doing this. I agree with Dennis. Not only is it the, the third midfield partnership in three games, it's actually the seventh different midfield partnership in seven games. They haven't been able to play the same midfield two games in a row, largely down to injury. Um, I think there will be a better balance and shape to the attack and defence, particularly um, once Jared Payne comes back in. But Ireland can't really complain about enforced selections and injuries given their injury profile is so much lower than everybody else and that's part of the World Cup territory. Do Jared Payne and uh, Rob Carney come straight back into your team, Jerry? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. question about that at all. Okay, yeah. Uh, just on the 
sort of shake up for the quarterfinals at this stage. Then it's Joe Schmidt said afterwards on TV that um, Ireland will be underdogs against New Zealand or Argentina. And I think people are certainly slowly maybe beginning to realise that we should be taking Argentina seriously. But at this point, we always knew it was going to come down to the France game. How important is it vital that we beat France if we're to make a semi final? I would think so, yeah. I think certainly, uh, I, I don't think it's any, you don't need to be great rugby knowledge to know it would be easier to be playing Argentina than it would be New Zealand. Not a huge amount based on the on, on the form of the tournament, but Ireland would have a different mindset going to play Argentina than they would New Zealand, as would anyone. But Argentina, you know, Argentina are a fantastic tournament team. You know, they really, you know, they're one team that's really... Uh, they're unbelievable. They yeah. uh, they look even more patriotic than usual. Yeah. Well, and they have forward. Maradona now in the stands yeah. cheering them on no, in the they, dressing room. Yeah, they, ju- they just build a great rapport, I think, during a tournament. And, and more importantly, from their perspective, they've actually, their performances are improving all the time. They, you know, they opened really strongly against Argentina, against, against New Zealand, albeit... You know there were some limitations in how they control the game, certainly in that in the in, in the second half or the twenty minutes, in the second twenty minutes of the second half. Um, but since then, you know they had a really strong game against Georgia, um, and a, you know a very strong game at the weekend as well. So against weaker op- opposition, but you know it, it's just kind of helped them build where they are in the tournament. And you know it's a very different challenge for Ireland to be playing um, Argentina than it would be for New Zealand, but it, not necessarily. Um, y- y- I wouldn't say one is a hell of a lot easier than the other. It's just New Zealand are are, are are so strong and they have such a strong squad that any any team would rather play um, uh, Argentina. But that's no disrespect to Argentina because I think you know they'd realise the same. The um, result of the tournament, or the result of the weekend came on Saturday night. Dennis, you must be feeling pretty good about your prediction for Australia to win the whole thing at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the group stages aren't finished yet and it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they can back it up against Wales um, when they're, uh, you know, when there's probably going to be a little bit more pressure on our, our Australia now for the rest mm-hmm. of the tournament after that win. You know, all the pressure was on England and, our, and Australia just came in a little bit under the radar and... Um, you know they were really excellent. I thought the weekend. There, you know, there's so many elements to their game that were, were, you know, the scrum was good, the set piece, the rook, rook area, and you know the rook area is going to be um, the big question for every team when they play Australia. Now, how do we, how do we get on top? How do we stop Australia getting on top of us like the way they did to England? Even though the English back row against the Australian back row, you know, they're probably the worst suited back row to be playing against that Australian team, and it was. You know, strange they could have they could come up with nothing to to negate it. But uh, you know, Wales will probably play. You mean the English back row are slow? Well, they're just different type of. They're not foragers. You know, Rob Shaw is not a forager like the way Pocock or um, Hooper. or Hooper is, uh, and, not, and Wood as well, and 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 uh, Ben Morgan. Yeah, all big guys, great ball, tight mauling forwards, but not. Now, Rob shows the he's, is is the most lo- is loose of the three of them, but he's nothing. In, in, he's not in the same category as, as the two Australians. And you know, Wales are better equipped for that um, because they'll have Warburton and, and maybe even Tipperick. Um, so you know, it'll be that'll be a really fascinating contest to see. You know, two great back rows going at it, and uh, then because that will determine how uh, how much Australia rely on their back row to, for for that dominance. Jerry, you're moving from London to Cardiff today. Uh, the generally accepted wisdom now is that it's bad for the tournament that the hosts are out so early on, and just a couple of weeks into it, really. Um, is it too early to say whether you've noticed uh, dwindling interest or not? It's very hard to say because. Um, London is such a vast city that the World Cup doesn't really, in truth, reach much beyond Twickenham and Richmond on match days, or, say, Wembley or the Olympic Stadium, wherever the game is. That once you venture into town, you might see one or two green shirts dotted around London last night, but there's no great sense of rugby taking over the, the city. It's, it's, it's the same as any other kind of Six Nations weekend in that sense, although there are massive events at Twickenham in the last two Saturday nights. You know, once you venture far from there, it's different from Cardiff which is the, with the ground so much in the centre of the city, um, and match day or match weekend is very obviously match day or match weekend. There is just no getting away from it unless you get out of Cardiff altogether. Um, so it's hard to say. I would imagine that for the next week, the English media will focus for, um, on in divisions within the English camp, on speculation about Stuart Lancaster's future. And then perhaps there will be a degree of dwindle interest in the quarterfinals onwards from the English supporters and the public in general. But it's still a World Cup. And I would imagine that, you know, ITV are covering this event large scale. The English media have devoted a lot of energy towards it in terms of their columns and so forth. Talks about radio, BBC Radio 5 Live. That will carry on. It's still a World Cup. It just, um, it just won't be with the host in it. And, and I don't think that is particularly good for the tournament. I think 
next weekend is not going to be quite the climax of the pool stage as everybody thought it would be. They're just going to be pool deciders. But we pretty much know the makeup of the final eight already, which wasn't expected. Dennis, what do you think? Well, uh, I would agree certainly with Jerry being, being having been in London a couple of weekends, and um, you know you don't get a huge sense of of well, it's just another huge event that London can take in its stride because it's just the size of the city. Some people know it's on, and some people yeah, don't well, know. The, it's the, on. the, the uh, NFL game was on yesterday, and Arsenal were playing beating Man United three 0 as well. While this was what Ireland exactly, was it's just as I said, it was uh, another big sporting event that the city can 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 absorb. Um, but you know, I I don't think it's great for the tournament. That no. they, you know, I was I was sorry to see England get knocked out. I felt sorry for them. You know, as a as a as a team and individually, you could see the pain that they'd be going through. And a lot of those guys will never get over that because it really was their their shot, the home World Cup, and now they're out um, at such an early stage. Um, but from the from TV perspective, I'd say that they, you know, the guy who was probably the next guy, most disappointed guy after Stuart Lancaster was probably the head of ITV. Yeah, <laughs> probably true enough. All right, listen, we leave it there. Dennis, Jerry, brilliant stuff. Cheers, thanks. And he is my second captain. Second captain. Uh-huh. It's the humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. Remember, one of you bring you back in on the uh, the English coverage of this because while certainly the media in general tends to give them a bit of a hammering, and we'll get to Jeff Probe and former England international in a couple of minutes on this anyway. But uh, I know you were watching this one on ITV, yeah, and we're quite quite struck by maybe a bit of delusion on behalf of their panel during the game. Uh, well, the panel was Michael Lina, uh, Johnny Wilkinson, and uh, Sir Clive Woodward. Uh, John Inverdale hosting for anyone who hasn't seen any of ITV's coverage so far uh, with Ben Kay and Lawrence Delalio on co-commentary I haven't seen any of it I was desperate to watch it on ITV and I don't I can't get it on my TV yeah if you've Sky there's a way to you can tune in your other channels but um, at halftime Wilkinson and Woodward now the, the, keep in mind that it had been a relatively even game Australia looked uh, Australia get their two tries they lead 17-3 the last 10 minutes of the half is basically England knocking on looking at each other like my god I can't believe we have 50 more minutes of this before we get knocked out of our own World Cup like completely gone mm. and Wilkinson and Woodward at halftime say well Wilkinson in particular said England are so close to ripping Australia apart here uh, They look, England look really good here No one, pa- everyone at home don't panic was the the message coming from and a lot of the coverage was actually very much it seemed to be tailored to the person who hadn't really seen a whole lot of rugby so there was like an element of listen I won the World Cup this guy managed us to win the World Cup we know what's going on it might look bad on the score on the scoreboard but England have this mm. so everyone just chill out right you don't understand rugby uh, yeah and I was I was watching it going like I I okay maybe I've had some sort of an episode in the last 10 minutes and I, I've misremembered what I've just watched over the last 10 or 15 minutes. But, uh, yeah, it was bizarre. It was really, really bizarre. And then in the aftermath, uh, in fairness, Clive Woodward, it took him about six seconds to mention uh, Stefan Armitage, which I thought was probably about four seconds longer than I, than I thought it would take him to mention Stefan Armitage. And then Johnny Wilkinson sort of started ranting about uh, how we need to be positive, we need to stay positive, and that we have a role to play here, us and the media, for creating like a good positive atmosphere around the English rugby team. I'm thinking, it might be gone beyond that. I'm sorry, Johnny, you've played in a lot of these World Cups. I mean, you had a lot of chat, you basically played in nothing but World Cups for like eight years of your career. Uh, so, I mean, we understand you had your chance, you're now getting money from ITV to sit here and talk to us about rugby. So, mm. I mean, you can kind of, you can't really take a job as a TV pundit and then say that uh, my job is to stay positive around the England rugby team, regardless of what's gone on in the field. I mean, if you're either a pundit and you're, you have to, basically what Johnny Wilkinson is, was trying to say is, I'm still a rugby player, I've just retired, that's all. Mm. 
at some stage you have to say I'm no longer a rugby player if I'm getting paid to do something then I'm that he might be coming at it from the angle I'm sure he is though that these players are going to get absolutely destroyed everywhere the coaches are going to be destroyed the, and you have a chance to be the first person to stick the boot in, Johnny, but, because you're on television. But there's a different, but there's also a, structure, a structural issue to this that England now, the way the group has been structured, have this week of they've got another week where this is totally in the news and have one more match to play. After which, the real, uh, the deeper questions will will probably come out. So it couldn't be, it couldn't actually have been timed worse for England. There's also the question of a lot. I've seen a lot of people saying. Well, why don't they just fix the groups next time so that the host nation doesn't get such a hard draw? Yeah, why don't you just award the cup to the host nation if you're going to do that? It's like. just it's the atmosphere around the country is going to be a lot better. So, well, maybe, so well, no, well, why, why don't why don't the the host co- uh, country get a buy into the final, mm. right? And then every so they're in the final, so there's like a month long expectation amongst the home fans, yeah. and then the tournament happens. And then, so the England the will be involved right advice, up to the very end. Simon, is and there any the the suggestion that they should? Well, sports organisations do things far more sneaky than sort out the draw. I think, and not that it should happen, but I'm amazed somebody somewhere didn't sort it that England were in an easy pool. Go on, go further. You think that they should fix the draw? No, I don't think it should be fixed. I'm just, just amazed you're just it surprised. didn't happen. <laughs> right, okay. Amazed and delighted at the, the, the high moral stance of the, the world rugby. So we should, we should be thankful for that. Jeff Proben, was this the worst day in, in English rugby history? No, 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 no way. Uh, the week before was actually worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Australia was always a do or die game. England failed to do. Uh, and Australia have been getting better. You know, we've, we've, we all knew that the Australians were the game that uh, would, would challenge the English. You know, we'd seen them improve. They played, they're beating the All Blacks in the Championship. Uh, good side. Our problem was that uh, losing to Wales. I mean, literally, to be ten points up in the game and to let it drift away uh, shows that there were there are problems with the with the actual team. Uh, the problems being uh, performance related or. Uh... A, a total systems failure, do you think? I mean, can, can you explain it away as being just uh, just two bad performances at the wrong time, or was there more to it than that? I think there's more to it than that. I think you can't do that. I think, you, you know, there are issues in terms of selection. I think, in reality, there are issues in terms of the the, the coaching, not necessarily Stuart Lancaster's overall picture, but the, the people who have been involved in the coaching below. Were our forwards good enough? No. So we have to look at our forwards coach. Were, were our backs, was our attacking plan good enough? No. Was our defence good enough? No. You know, so arguments are that the people are, um, are below Stuart Lancaster, uh, his team are, of, of managers need to be looked at and they need to look at themselves. They need to ask questions about themselves, whether they've delivered what, what they set out to do. Jeff, what about all the things that happened off the field before the World Cup? Whether it be for political reasons or for off-field problems, on-field problems, if you look at Dylan Hartley wasn't there, Manu Tuolagi wasn't there, Armitage wasn't there, maybe the best flanker uh, England have had for a decade or so. Um, did, did the problems start before it ever started, before the World Cup began? Well, I think there were problems before the World Cup began. Certainly, Dylan Hartley and Tuolagi were were an issue. Um, you know, Dylan Hartley's. Uh, Discipline record was the thing that caused the problem for him, and obviously Tuolangi, with his discipline record off the field, has uh, caused the problem for him. So, in that sense, they were two. They were two things that were taken out of Stuart Lancaster's hand. He could have closed his eyes and just bought in the players and done it, and said, "Oh, you know, I'm having these players no matter what." But uh, that's not the culture that he's laid out in front of him for this England team. You know. It, Australia have had their problems with some of their players and, uh, and chosen not to bring them, the guys who've had bad off-the-field field behaviour. Well, they've had well, the Curtly Beale is back playing brilliant rugby for them. Well, so it's, it's, yeah, not, it's not just, uh, some guys go astray, but uh, it's not a, a matter of just cutting them all adrift at that stage. Well, it depends how close it is to the World Cup, doesn't it? I mean, you, you know, Dylan Hartley's ban was literally let, kept him out of the squad, didn't it, for the first week. So, arguably, he, it was, if it had been three months before, then he could have been in the team. So, you can understand why, why Lancaster chose that option. As far as Stefan Armitage is concerned, you know, Stefan Armitage has played for England. It's not as if he's never played. He's played for England. He showed what he could do. And actually, he wasn't that good. He's gone to Toulon. He worked well with Toulon. Toulon have uh, world-class players all over the field. 
Uh, and obviously they're creating a situation, uh, an environment, which he thrives in. Who's to say he'd, he'd thrive in an English environment? He had the option to come back to England and play, play his club rugby over in England, and he chose not to. He chose to stay in too long and play his rugby there. You know, we can't make that judgment. You have to, you have to see the guy playing week to week in, uh, against the, the opposition that he'll be facing. He's playing in France. He's playing, as I say, with, with what is a world-class 15. It's like playing for a barbarian side every week. Well, yeah, but he, but he, but he's, but he's still probably their best performer. I mean, he, and we've seen this because we've followed closely when Leinster have played them a couple of times, and when Armitage is on the field, Leinster are screwed. And when Armitage isn't there, they've got half a chance because he's he's that dominant a player for them. You know, I think we're uh, fair enough. He's playing with other good players, but he's actually one of the leading lights there. He is a good player, and he, he works. If, if you if you think about it, in a way, the too long figured out the two open side uh, game that Australia played yeah. against England before. Before Australia did, you know, he he's 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 not a number eight. You know that. I mean, we all know that he's never a number eight. But they use him as a number eight because it gives them that over the ball play that we saw Pocock doing so well against England. It's it's and you know, and he they worked it out. They they use that style. Dylan's very strong at that. England don't have that that sort of player. They don't have those style of players playing in and around him. You know, would it have been good enough for Armitage to be playing with Robshaw? Or are you now saying we have to change the entire back row structure? You know, it may be that they do have to change the entire back row structure. And then we can, then you'd look at it and say, well, Armitage fits the new structure. Let's look at Armitage. It's, it's, it's easy to be picking people with 2020 vision. You know, from my point, I, I did say before this World Cup, the England, well, I was a bit worried that England were talking about 2019. The aspect is that I, one of the one of the aspects about Lancaster that I think he did wrong was in many ways putting his his ambitions and feelings in front of the players. You know the argument that he had a special commission film to to tell them what, how important this this World Cup was, as if the players didn't know that already. Uh, you know the part of the RSU build up. Lancaster, in a way, personally, would try, I think would try to keep the players isolated. Due to the way that the RFU has approached this World Cup, using the players, if you like, as um, as a media to sell it, you know, make them giants do this, they've actually put extra pressure on the players. Um, the players playing in a, a, a spotlight environment probably wasn't a good thing, particularly for the younger ones. Uh, in, in, other, in other words, they, 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 they took it, of course it's serious, but... Uh, nearly the whole operation was too serious. It was too. There was no. It was too f- filled with pressure, and and there's already enough natural. There's already enough pressure on a team playing at home that you don't actually need to be t- to be told repeatedly how important this all is for the country. No, no, and that's it. It is intense, you know. And and, and arguably, you know, going into this game against Australia, this is the most important game of your life. This is this is this, this is that, this is the other most important game for English rugby since you know the game was invented in whenever. <laughs> so if you if you do that, you, you most coaches wouldn't be saying that. They'd be saying this is just another game. Just approach it like another game. Yes, there is an importance to it, but focus on what we do play, when we play normally, and and. It, that's something Lancaster's probably found it impossible to do, given the pressure he's been under. Jeff, the English football team talk about pressure a lot, and they went out in the group stages of the last major tournament, and the same with the cricket team. There's some parallels being drawn in terms of those three organisations. Is there a bigger picture here for English sport, a, a more worrying trend? I don't think it's a worrying trend. I think there's a bigger picture. You know, you may think this is a bit lighthearted, but sadly, I... <laughs> I have a view that says that uh, England can only be good at one sport at one time. We won the Ashes, so we weren't going to win the World Cup. Do you think there's anything in the idea, though, that uh, England are a bad tournament nation? They they put more pressure on themselves than other major nations do. I think the, I think the press, do, the media do certainly. Uh, the media, the English media, is is very unsupportive. You know, they you're the best team in the world if you win a game. You're the worst team in the world if you lose a game. And I think that that in itself puts pressure on on players. You know, arguably in a professional age, it's, it's worse than it was in the amateur days. But uh, when you hear Chris Rodfield's partner saying about having having to feel the insults from people screaming abuse outside their house uh, <laughs> after they lost against Wales, you know, God knows what it's like now. Mm, I hadn't actually heard that. That's pretty ridiculous. All right, listen, Jeff Problem, really appreciate you talking today. Thanks a million. Nice to speak to you guys.
I have very different opinions with, that Jeff Probin has compared to what Dennis Hickey was saying about the effect on players. He doesn't seem to think that any of the young players will be will have any long term. This talk of twenty nineteen though. Nonsense. I mean, we talked a bit about this off air. Murphy was saying about how everybody talks about the next World Cup during Six Nations. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, half these guys could be injured, half them could be retired. Uh, Stuart Lancaster. Stuart Lancaster has been building for this one. He was specifically chosen with this World Cup in mind. You know, there's a, a long-term plan here with using the right out half. Then he flips the out half. He flips the center situation right before the World Cup. Uh, the tiniest bit of pressure. The whole philosophy goes out the window. It's absolute nonsense talking about four years hence. Well, Honestly, totally, totally ridiculous. I mean, it's utterly absurd. But I mean, it happens at every single Rugby World Cup where it's like it's part of a four-year cycle, and then the team that either sack their manager but allow him to stay in the hotel room, uh, i.e. France four years ago, <laughs> or Australia, it's like uh, Michael Shekis yeah. says, yeah, I'll take the job, but I'm going to hold on to my day job and then like three days before our the autumn test, before or the November test before the World Cup, I'll, I'll, I'll basically come in and say hello to the team and we'll get started from there. And Shekis, not alone has he like... Not alone has he managed to like corral, uh, corral a team that was already brilliant, you know, and said, right, okay. Sorry, also a team that had all sorts of off-field problems. Massive off-field problems, like uh, a, like core components of the game completely malfunctioning to a hilarious and humiliating degree, i.e. The, the scrum. And just goes, yeah, well, I've got, a f- I've got a whole year to do this. I mean, I've got, I've, but forget that, I've got a month to like get the guys together I mean, this whole idea that you need four years to plan for a tournament, a guy pulls his hamstring in the first five minutes of the first game. You know, you have to be able to react to things. This idea that you, you have four years to prepare for every available eventuality. What, ha- what will happen in England in tw- in, for England in 2019 is they'll parachute another guy in from Rugby League with like six months to go uh, and c- convince themselves that this guy is the guy that's going to win us the World Cup. I mean, it just always happens. It always happens. So stop demeaning the Six Nations Championships by talking about this idea that the Rugby World Cup is the only thing that ever matters. Well, maybe the way Jackie did that, you know, coming in sort of in quite a breezy manner, going, oh, yeah, let's, we'll, let's get this sorted, sort of relaxes everyone from the outside. It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe a bit of a Denmark 92 sort of vibe to it where you're like, oh, let's have a go at this, you know. Whereas the England team, you could see this oh, massive... That's it. They just took it so seriously. Oh, you know, they're like, oh, no, here we all are now, uh, you know, marching to our doom. You know, with yeah. all of the people here at Twickenham watching. Did you see them at halftime? There's, a big, there's an image of them at halftime standing in the dressing room watching this TV, which is supposedly showing them their mistakes <laughs> yeah. from the first half. And you think, this is, not, this is not what they need. You know, oh no, we played so badly. We're 14 points down. They're much better than we are. I mean, that was the, that was the thing about the tries. Australia scored the kind of tries that when I'm watching a game, I'm like, well, they're clearly the better team. You know what I mean? When you see guys kind of running in opposite directions and sort of... It looked like a different sport. It was... England were playing a thing, uh, a game where if you get 25 phases, if you run, if you get tackled 25 times in a row, that that gets you three points. That's the sport they appear to be playing. Whereas Australia were playing a sport where if you touch the ball down behind the line there in the goalpost, that gets you five points. It looked like two completely different sports. The the angles of running, like the the creativity, the skill of their interchanges was brilliant. I mean, I I was looking at that thinking, well, Ireland, I haven't seen Ireland doing that in a long time. You know what I mean? Ireland don't often do that kind of thing. This is a seriously good team. And England were, were... England knew they were doomed. I mean, at halftime, s- standing there watching their mistakes, they knew they had no chance. It was it was agony to watch them. They're such a smart tournament team, though, Australia. They, you, we always look at them as, as the team we can beat from the Southern Hemisphere, but yet you see them in the World Cup and it's a different animal, and it always is. And all this stuff about all, all the criticism that England are getting from their media and the pressure that was heaped on them. I was in Australia in 2003 when they got to the World Cup final and they were getting destroyed by the media right the way up until about the quarterfinal. And suddenly, didn't they beat Australia? was in the semis and everyone was saying, oh, this team... But the, they're so mentally strong. Uh, this is a totally different team, obviously, but the 2003 team is so mentally strong that they didn't care. In fact, maybe they did care what people were saying about it, but they were able to use it as a positive. Mm. Whereas England were just... Allowing allowing the weight of the world to fall on their shoulders and all this stuff about Lancaster disciplinarian values, all these things. That's fine, but you don't have to do that in the first few months Kurt, and Kurt, then concentrate on the rugby. You like, mentioned it. You mentioned still there, obsessing yeah. over Rob Shaw's personality. And you mentioned there, Curtly Beale has had excluding you know these yeah. these wild cards from the from yeah, the squad. Yeah, Curtly Beale's had had some issues with booze and he's had some issues off the field. 
And Michael Check is obviously, I don't know if he's specifically his work, but he's allowed Beal a bit of space. And he's now back in. He comes off the bench and is one of their best players. You don't yeah. have to kick out your so-called bad boys. Yeah. To have yeah. A why not, why not have a meeting with Curtly Beal, which is what Check, I'm sure, did. Check has sat down with Curtly to talk to me. You know, mm. I think you're a really good player. I think you can help the Australian rugby team. Uh, what can I do to help you out? Curtly Beal comes to him with a... Uh, you know, uh, uh, his own personal situation. He says, I really want to play. What can we do to sort this out? This idea that you have to have a rule for absolutely every player and that rule has to be, that's the standard you have to meet and nothing above or below that rule be that where you play your rugby, what you do off the field, what you do on the field. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's very, school, very quickly, Simon, just last word. Just it, it's a complete generalisation, but we always talk about Australian confidence and you talked about Cech's demeanour on the side of the pitch. It's amazing. He's high-fiving people. He's smiling. He's having the time of his life. Eddie Jones is the same. He's Australian, obviously. Yeah. And Australia just always seem to have this well of confidence to go to, no matter what sort of situation they're in. Even at times when their scrum is completely crap and being destroyed, they somehow kind of figure a way to get through things because we are actually got a better backline, and that's the most important thing. No matter what's going on, they seem to just be able to draw on this thing. And that's all, across all sports. And then Ireland, I feel like the tiniest thing goes wrong particularly our, our rugby team, and this is going back historically, we suddenly feel like all the pressure of previous bad World Cups and, oh, maybe it's going to happen again. That, I thought that's the way Ireland played. It's not the way necessarily we play against France. But yep. All right, the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast will be out today. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Yeah, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you known? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Pretty big weekend of football, Owen, as you were mentioning earlier. So, where the things we're talking about are obviously Brendan Rodgers' departure from Liverpool. Um, You know, and where where he goes from here, who's going to come in there. And. Uh, the other thing was Arsenal uh, thrashing Manchester United out of sight. Mm. Um, 3-0 at the Emirates the other day. Which means we don't even have a piece on Jose Mourinho. Um, <laughs> Jose Mourinho uh, putting Roman Abramovich in his place. Informing Roman Abramovich of exactly the lie of the land in a, in a seven-minute uh, speech on Sky Sports. So, uh, But we will be talking about we that. We can talk worry. plenty about that indeed. Murph, just the last story to squeeze into this podcast, if we may, there's so much going on, is the latest West of Ireland inter-county GA squad to hmm. uh, heave their manager, try to heave their manager out of his job. Yeah, I don't think uh, it's going to be. It's going to end quite as uh, quite as easily as, uh, as the Mayo uh, spat did. But yes, Galway Hurling thrown into... Crisis. Uh, apparently, a large majority, or unanimous majority, depending on who you're listening to, uh, want Anthony Cunningham. Uh, want him out, even though Anthony Cunningham has already been granted an extension uh, by the Galway County Board. Apparently, the the players informed the board of how they felt, uh, and then two days later, uh, the board went ahead and gave Anthony Cunningham a, an extension anyway. Right. Which would seem to me to be a pretty bizarre way to go about things when. If there's a problem, at least try and talk it through. Spend two weeks trying to uh, get to the bottom of it and then give the guy the extension. As it is now, they appear to have backed themselves into a massive corner. So what's the difference between the male footballers and the goal hurlers? The male footballers uh, are in a completely different position to the goal hurlers. Before Cunningham came in, goal hurling was pretty much nowhere. We'd gone through manager after manager, hadn't been in an Ireland final since 2005, Cunningham has gotten, gotten Gola to two All-Ireland Finals in the last four years. Um, there is an element of... Where, whereas with Mayo, Mayo, the Mayo players have pro- proven themselves to be the third best team in the country. Uh, the management have to go in and prove that... You know, they, they don't owe anything to the manager mm. that they got after James Horn. The Gola hurlers were nowhere before Cunningham came in. They, they have to accept that Cunningham has played a major part in what they've done over the last number of years. They can't say that they will definitely be better with a better manager. They, they they haven't proven themselves to the level that the male footballers have. To be honest, my feelings are the exact same as they were last week when talking about the male footballers. If the manager doesn't have the players, then it's easier to replace one man than it is to replace thirty guys. So yeah, I mean, if if well, how Noel Canelli and Pat Holmes acted over the weekend, 
I, I just have to I have to say that I have a lot of respect for those guys, even though it was the only it was blatantly obvious it, it was the right thing to do. At the same time, there is personal pride at stake and they put their own personal pride completely to one side and said, right, well, Mayo aren't going to win the All-Ireland if the players hate us. So that, uh, as a result of that, there is no choice for us to make here. I have to go. Cunningham has to do something similar now, and like, and I would have much more sympathy for him than I would have for Canali and Holmes because he has proven himself to be a good manager, and he has done things with the Gola hurling team that uh, a lot of other guys have tried and failed miserably to do. But if you've lost the dressing room, you've lost the dressing room, and in three months' time he'll come to the conclusion that there's no point working with people that don't want me here. Let's just hope he comes to that conclusion in three days now rather than three months. All right, great stuff. Hope you enjoyed this podcast too. But listen to the football show out today. Plenty in that on Rogers and on um, Mourinho and all the rest of that. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, all. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank you, all. Thank you, Kieran. If you are listening on iTunes, please rate the show, comment on it, subscribe to it in the first place, I guess would be the thing to do. And then do all those, uh, do all those other things if you get a chance. Thanks a million for listening to this one. We will talk to you again soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 